Good morning, and welcome to Prairie View Christian Church, and happy 4th of July weekend to you. Now, as we start out in the first letter of Peter, beginning a new sermon series here at Prairie View, we read what's called a general letter, sometimes called a Catholic letter with a small c. What that means is that it was written not to just one particular church, but this letter was written to a group of churches. And the Christians receiving this letter make up churches gathered north of Jerusalem, not far from the Black Sea. Most of these Christians are non-Jews. And to be honest, we don't know for sure whether or not Peter, the author of the letter, ever actually visited there. Now, even though these churches may be close together on a map, that doesn't mean that they're all the same. Peter may have heard about these Christians as he was sitting in jail in Rome near the end of his life, likely around 65 A.D. He hears about these believers and recruits his friend Silvanus to help him send a letter. But Peter knows that every church is different no matter where you go. They have different leaders, they're different sizes, and they usually have a different makeup of people inside of them. But as Peter writes this letter... To these many, many different churches, Peter knows that they do have one thing in common. And that thing in this case is that they're suffering. And that's why Peter refers to them as elect exiles. Now, if you really think about it, elect exiles is an interesting phrase. To elect someone means that you choose them, you approve of them. But if you exile someone, that means you send them away. You disapprove of them. So how is it possible for these Christians to be both elect and exiles at the same time? Those two words seem to contradict each other. Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, God's people experienced two big exiles, one of them at the hands of Assyria, the other at the hands of Babylon. And in both instances, God's people appear to have lost everything, their homes, their freedom, and their dignity. But in both cases in the Old Testament, God's people brought this upon themselves through their own sin. But the exiles that Peter writes to are different. They haven't been taken from their homes, but in a sense, they still feel homeless. They may not be facing down violent persecution like the Old Testament Israelites, at least not yet. But the rejection that these exiles are facing is still very real. They're exiles in the sense that the world around them has labeled them outcasts, unacceptable, backwards. And it all stems from what they believe about Jesus. So Peter hears about their hardship and he writes. He seeks to remind them of who they are in Christ. He looks to encourage them to endure. And he hopes to offer them some guidance about what faithfulness to Christ looks like in a world that is confused by them, indifferent to them, but sometimes offended by them and hostile to them. And I believe that Peter's reminders, Peter's encouragements and Peter's guidance could come in handy for we Christians today as well. Because in some ways, our situation isn't totally unlike the situation of these elect exiles. Like them, we're not to the point of facing formal state-sponsored persecution. However, it remains true that 
Christianity just doesn't have quite the same respected place in our society that it once did. In some ways, that could be a good thing. But in other words, maybe not so much. Christians today may find themselves facing what Pope Francis has labeled polite persecution. Polite persecution may not look like traditional persecution in the way we think about it. Swords and blood, stuff like that. You see, polite persecution is much less barbaric than that. If you as a Christian are facing polite persecution, you may simply find yourself, slowly but surely, being rejected by the society in which you live. For example, if you work in politics, you may be interrogated and considered unfit for public service because you believe there is only one true God revealed in the person and work of Jesus. If you're the owner or CEO of a company and you hold to Orthodox Christian teaching on marriage and family, you may get bullied into resigning or closing your business entirely. If you're a doctor who believes the most vulnerable humans among us, both young and old, deserve dignity and protection, you may be shunned by your colleagues. If you work in education, you may be blackballed when you show even the slightest hesitation to the latest, greatest ideological trends. It's true that in our country, you probably won't get crucified or beheaded or burned at the stake, but you still could face polite persecution. You may find yourself an outcast, an exile. You might not have to deal with old fashioned swords and blood persecution, but you could still find yourself blackballed. Now, if these trends in our society trouble you, which, to be honest, I believe they should, 1 Peter does have something to say. His reminders, his encouragements, and his guidance may come in handy for believers like us. So open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we read any further, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would give us wisdom, give us discernment, give us humility as we read your word. I pray that you would give us ears to hear. I also pray that you would help us in this challenge that we face of living faithfully to your son Jesus in a world that is changing so rapidly, in a world that sometimes accepts us and sometimes doesn't. So, Father, I pray that we would be bold witnesses to Christ. I pray that we would accept the cost that might just come along with being those bold witnesses. I pray that we would bring you glory. I pray that we would bring you honor. I pray that we would be marked by holiness and marked by love, as we'll talk about here in just a moment. I pray that when people encounter us, they would see Christ in us, that they would see people who are taken by the example of Christ, taken by the love that Christ showed for us on the cross, just totally absorbed into the cross. So, Father, watch over us. I pray that we would be your witnesses in this world. Be with us as we hear your word. Be with those in need. Be with those who are traveling. Keep them safe. Be with Kyle and his mission work in Cambodia. And, Father, I pray this morning would be honoring to you. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.
Let's begin by reading 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So again, how can these Christians be both elect and exiles at the same time? It doesn't seem to make sense. Well, it's because they're accepted and chosen by God. In that sense, they're elect, but they're rejected by the world around them. In that sense, they're exiles. But when Peter refers to them as elect, he's getting at something much, much bigger. He's getting at this truth that the God who once formed a people around Abraham and the law of Moses in the Old Testament is now forming a people around Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the sprinkling of blood of sacrificial animals marked the beginning of the Old Covenant. That's how you were set apart. That's the idea of holiness. You were different from the people around you. Well, in the New Testament, a new covenant has been initiated through the sprinkling of Christ's blood. We are now set apart. We are now holy because of the blood of Christ. We are God's people. But then Peter continues in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. There is a lot there that we could discuss. But there are two big things I want to focus on in this passage. The first is when Peter says that we've been born again to a living hope. And the second is when Peter says that we've been given an inheritance. We've been born again by the grace and mercy of God, which means that we are not remotely the same people we once were. Again, we've been set apart. We've been made holy. We have been radically changed from the inside out, given new hearts and new minds and new desires, the kind of change that only the power of God can bring about. And as a result of this change, 
as a result of Christ's death and resurrection, we have a new hope that we have never had before. A living hope. And part of that hope is the inheritance that waits for us. And this inheritance is unlike anything this world can promise us. The trends and the fads and the rat races of getting ahead. Eventually, people will look back at those things of this world and consider them old, insufficient, outdated. But our inheritance as Christ is the, is the polar opposite, excuse me. Our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And this living hope, our future inheritance in Christ, is the motivation we need to press on in a world that rejects Christ and often will reject us. We have this living hope. We have this inheritance, even though many people around us may not recognize it. And many people around us may think that our hope is in vain. They may think that we're fools. But we know better. That our inheritance will never be outdated. Our inheritance will never be insufficient. And our inheritance will never be defiled. Thus we have confidence. And we have joy that Peter says is inexpressible. That is our living hope. Now, that being said, even though we have this hope, these suffering Christians are going to face things that will be nothing to sneeze at. And Peter does not want to utterly dismiss their fears. But Peter does make it clear that the inheritance they'll receive in the end is more than worth the hardships. Resurrection, salvation, Eternity in the presence of Christ himself. The stuff that you've been given by the grace of God. Peter says that's the stuff the prophets wrote about, but didn't actually get to see. That's the stuff that angels long to look into. And it's been given to you. That's what's waiting for those chosen and approved by God. Those elect. Even if right now we feel more like exiles. So these Christians in First Peter, and we Christians today, and really every other Christian in between, we all find ourselves in the same position. Peter says that you do not see Christ. Well, we don't see Christ. Because we're trying to learn how to live faithfully, even though Christ is not physically in our presence. That's hard. But then what makes it even harder is that the world around us is often less than enthusiastic about what we believe and what we practice. Peter recognizes that. And so Peter reminds these Christians and reminds us of who we are. He reminds us of what lies ahead. And all of this is meant to be of great encouragement to us. But Peter doesn't just give reminders of who we are. He doesn't just give encouragements to face suffering boldly and faithfully. Peter also issues a challenge. He issues a call that he wants us to fulfill. We see that in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So we're not just called to be hopeful from verses 3 through 12, but we're also called to be holy. Way back in verse 2, Peter said that we've been called in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. In other words, we've been made holy by the blood of Christ, and now Peter calls us to live like it. Peter quotes Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, one of the linchpin passages of the entire Old Testament. Jesus quotes the exact same verse on the Sermon on the Mount when he tells his disciples that they should be perfect as their heavenly Father is perfect. There's this emphasis on holiness, even though holiness gets a bad rap these days. That's because holiness is often confused with legalism. Or we hear the word holiness and, and associate it with this attitude of being holier than thou. But there's a difference between holiness and legalism. Legalism is a desire to earn God's approval. And being holier than thou is a desire to prove yourself better than the people around you. But neither one of those things marks holiness. Holiness is not trying to earn God's approval. Holiness is our response to God's approval, gained for us through Christ. Holiness is not driven by some desire to prove ourselves better than those around us. It's driven by the Holy Spirit himself. And holiness is not marked by arrogance. Holiness is marked by a growing humility. So Peter tells us to be holy as Christ is holy. And in a world that is hostile to Christ, holiness will stick out, but it will stick out in a good way. So Peter's first piece of advice to these outcast Christians is not to try and gain power over those who reject them. His guidance is not to shove their beliefs and their practices down the throats of those around them. Peter's first piece of guidance is to be holy. But then just as Peter challenges us to be holy, he thankfully reminds us that Christ is holy. He describes him as the lamb without blemish or spot in verse 19. He says his blood, the blood that's been sprinkled for you back in verse 2, 
His blood is more precious than silver or gold. That blood was shed for you, that you might be holy, as God is holy, as Christ is holy. And then last but not least, being reminded of the love that Christ has for us, that his blood was spilled for us. Peter calls us to love each other. You see, holiness and love are clear markers of those born again to a living hope. Holiness and love are clear markers of those born again through the living and abiding word of God. So this world may reject you, but Peter says you are accepted by God. And as Isaiah says, everything in this world as we know it will fade like grass, unlike our inheritance, because the word of God remains. So in the meantime, as we live in this world opposed to the things of God, Peter calls us to be holy. And in a world that only lives for the moment, Peter calls us to live for a glorious future inheritance. And we can be confident that God's promises and God's faithfulness will stand true through it all. So then we close out the passage in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. A cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So you could sum up chapter 1, verses 13 through 25, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, by saying this. You are God's people, set apart by Christ, so live like God's people. You might feel like exiles. You might feel rejected and outcast by this world. But you are chosen and loved by God. So live like it. And don't forget it. As we mentioned earlier, Abraham and the law of Moses were once the cornerstone of God's people. Everything was built around Abraham and the law. But now Christ has been revealed as the true cornerstone. Peter says to those who refuse Christ, it's like a stumbling block. But to those who accept him, he's the cornerstone that holds the whole building together. 
Way back in the book of Exodus, when God freed the Israelites from Egypt, he called those slaves his treasured possession. He called them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And that's what Peter does here. Because what Peter's getting at is that in God's eyes, we are not a rejected minority. We are not lowly misfits. We are not unclean masses, no matter what the world might tell us. At times, as believers, we might feel like we have nowhere to go in this world, like we're homeless, like we're orphans. But the truth remains that we are children in the house of God the Father, with none other than Christ as the cornerstone holding the whole house together. And Christ is a cornerstone that will never fail, will never weaken, and will never buckle, no matter how much pressure we face from the outside world. So as we wait for Christ to return, we do not whine and complain about our hardships. We don't look back with nostalgia on the times when we thought that we were on top or plot about how we can take our society back over for Christ. Instead, we proclaim the excellencies of Christ, even to people who have made it clear that they don't buy it. And we don't just proclaim the excellencies of Christ with our words, but we proclaim the excellencies of Christ with everything that Peter has mentioned. Our hope, our confidence, our joy, our holiness, and our love. And who knows? Some of the people who might look at you with contempt right now because you're a believer, one of these days they might just join our merry band of exiles. But in the meantime, we do have to resist the temptation to turn ourselves into martyrs. Again, the truth is that good old-fashioned swords and blood persecution likely isn't in our future living in America. And we should thank God for that, especially on the weekend of 4th of July. But let's also not kid ourselves. With the way the world is changing, with the way our society is changing, faithfulness to Christ will not come cheap. So we must ask ourselves whether or not we're prepared to embrace our role as elect exiles, faithful witnesses, even if it costs us rejection in the eyes of the world. But as we are reminded that faithfulness is not cheap, may we never forget that our salvation was not cheap either. Our salvation required the blood of the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, blood far more precious than silver or gold, blood far more precious than anything this world could ever offer us. So as we step back and as we look at the world around us, and try to discern what it means to live faithfully. What it means to be his witnesses. We're left with basically three options. Option number one is we could give in entirely to the world around us. And abandon Christ completely. Or we could give in partially. And practice a faith that might be acceptable to society at large but really bears no resemblance to the true Christian faith revealed in Scripture. Or the third option is with the help of God, we could strive for faithfulness and accept the exile that just might come along with it. 
So as Christians today, we might find ourselves at a crossroads, similar to the elect exiles that Peter wrote to. So we, too, are called to wrestle with what it looks like for us to be faithful to Christ in a society getting further and further away from Christ. And as we consider which path to take, may we not forget the guidance that Peter has given us. May we not forget who God says we are and who God has called us to be. And even when the hardships come, even when we feel lost and homeless and exiled, may we hold on to that hope, that joy, that confidence, that love, and that holiness that God has given us and that God has called us to. So again, as we leave this place, we leave as a holy nation. We leave as a royal priesthood. Bearing witness to the God who has called us in a world that is getting further and further away from him. So I pray that we would have boldness and courage and endurance to fulfill the task that God has given to us. Knowing that ultimately this task is not fulfilled by our own sweat and blood. It's not fulfilled by our own strength. But it's fulfilled by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we work at this mission with joy and with confidence, being reminded that Christ is our cornerstone and that that cornerstone does not fail. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together to read your word. It's so easy to come to your word especially if we've read it before, especially if we've heard it preached before, and just kind of gloss over it. But I pray that your word would be just as challenging and convicting and moving as it was the first time we ever read it. So, Father, this morning as we read your word, we encounter challenges. We encounter calls that look to be intimidating, and they are. If we attempt to fulfill them by our own will, our own strength, our own muscle. But Father, we are not expected to fulfill these callings by our own strength and will and muscle. We're expected to fulfill these callings because you've given us everything we need to fulfill these callings. You've washed us, you've cleansed us, you've given us your spirit, you've given us your word. You've given us each other. And so, Father, I pray that we as a church together would spur each other on in this life of faithfulness that you've called us to. Father, I pray that you would watch over our world. Again, it's so easy to become pessimistic and become fearful and have some kind of bunker mentality when we read about the world around us. But we're not called to do that. We're called to live in this world as public witnesses proclaiming your excellencies. And we don't do that with fear. We do that with hope and joy and confidence. All through your son, Jesus. Again, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your son. We ask this all in his name. Amen.